Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 and beginning at verse 1. I, uh, I think I've said this a thousand times. I wish I had a nickel for every time I said this, but boy, I wish I could have gone through the whole chapter tonight, but it looks like we're going to take a part of it. But I think you'll understand when we do so that uh, there's some things in the first half of this particular uh, book, uh, or I should say this particular chapter of Isaiah, that, uh, that we need some clarity on, and, and, and we're going to uh, focus our attention upon that tonight as we get to it. But here, beginning in verses 1 and 2, we want to read this passage and enter right into our study this, this evening. We've been dealing with the judgment upon Babylon. And while we have been getting a few things uh, of the nature of a near or uh, immediate fulfillment not long after Isaiah gives this particular prophecy, there is as well a, a far or ultimate fulfillment that is yet to come even for us. Uh, in other words, something that we'll see in the future uh, as, as the complete fulfillment of the prophecy. And so here in verses 1 and 2 it says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. Now remember, this is after the judgment that is to be given unto Babylon. It says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Now isn't it interesting that part of that is already being fulfilled today in that there is a nation called Israel and they are in a part of what is their land. But this is signifying really a settlement in all of their land. It says the strangers, will, uh, the strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. And then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. And they will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. So now as we enter into chapter 14 of Isaiah, we're introduced to a link between the description of Babylon's fall in the previous chapter and a mocking song, what some people call a taunt song, against its king, against Babylon's king, that comprises the main content of chapter 14. Now what we're given in the opening of this chapter is a reason other than Babylon's own sin for its fall. In other words, what we've noticed up to this point is that God has been showing us that the reason why he's judging uh, uh, Babylon is because of their cruelty, their wickedness, their evil toward Israel. And certainly all of the nations that God is judging is going to judge them upon that particular basis. But here we find that there is a reason other than that. And that reason is namely God's love for his own people. God's love for his people. His love continues. Notice, for the, the Lord will have mercy on Jacob. And the word for mercy is in the Old Testament is usually the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, uh, transliterated from the Hebrew, hesed, which, which means loving kindnesses. And so we always tie mercy and, 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 and loving kindness together because that is really the root of, of this particular uh, aspect of God's love. It is his loving kindness toward his people, his mercy toward his people. And so the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still, it says, will still choose Israel. 
So his love continues then to be extended to Israel in the name of those who would be deported to, uh, to Babylon, which was going to come, of course, for 70 years, and that would be Judah. Judah would be the ones that are taken into captivity into Babylon. And so much later on, God is going to judge Babylon for what they did. But we're also told that God is having mercy on Jacob. And uh, so in an earlier prophecy, if you remember, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, in this prophecy that spoke of God's judgment coming on Israel, we were told that the Lord would be withholding His compassion on them. Now this is a hard concept for us to take, but it's something that we have to understand happens from time to time, even with believers in Jesus Christ. Not that we don't know that God is there, that we don't, you know, realize how much he loves us or whatever, but, but the fact of the matter is there are times when we have disobeyed God to, to, to the extent that we find ourselves sensing no love or compassion from God. It, it happens, doesn't it? The problem isn't God, it's us. We're the ones that bring ourselves to that point. But there is that, that, that sense of detachment for what? For us to turn back to God. For us to call out to God and say, God, I mean, I went crazy. I don't know where I, went. I don't know what I was doing. But, well, yeah, you do, but you know, don't don't lie to God. I mean, He's going to get you for that. But, <laughs> but the, the point of the matter is, He wants us to be able to come to Him and, and, and say, Lord, I left you. You didn't leave me. And, and so there there is that sense of of withholding compassion to a certain extent. But now it's worse, really, for Israel, because we're talking about a whole people. And, and uh, in Isaiah 9, verse 17, it says, Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. And, and, and that's, you know, that's really opening the door for, for a, a tremendous discipline, a tremendous chastisement of God upon His people. That God would have no joy, that God would have no mercy to show toward the father, fatherless and the widows. And that's a heavy-duty thing because those were the people that Israel was supposed to be taking care of. And then it says, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. His hand of judgment on his people stretched out still. Because they have become hard-headed. They have become stiff-necked. They have become uh, uh, stubborn against God. And this was due to God's people being unwilling to repent from their sins and turn to the Lord. But that time, you see, that time of chastisement was over. And it's now time for compassion. And God will always have compassion for His people because in Israel's future, there will be a time when God will once more choose them as His most favored nation. Please understand that God will always have a love for His people. But realize this. That in the times, in their times of, of, of going through their judgment, in their times of going through this this discipline, this chastisement, there is that necessity for, for God to let certain things happen. But his heart is toward his people. It always is. In Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty five, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until you see until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's yet to come, really, when we, if we understand fully what it means, the, the, the fullness of the Gentiles. So, 
he still is going to favor his people. And that is, of course, what we read in the prophets all the way to the book of Revelation, that he is favoring his people. His people will be back in their land. The Lord is going to take care of them. The Lord is going to fight for them. The Lord is going to redeem them in their land because he loves them. And by the way, that time is getting very, very close. We should be watching very carefully what goes on in the news today in the Middle East. Joel Rosenberg who wrote a book, uh, he actually wrote a, a, a couple of books that were uh, uh, actually written from the standpoint of being political thrillers, you know, uh, novels but based on certain things that were happening uh, internationally and, 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 uh, and prophetically because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. But uh, he, he wrote uh, these novels based on his, his reading of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and realizing that there were some, uh, there were some uh, groups that were getting together uh, that, that, that seemed unlikely maybe 30, 40 years ago during the Cold War. But now things are happening that, that seem to be falling into place. One uh, uh, example uh, is Russia and, and Iran. That, that wasn't thought about a long, long time ago. But that's happening today. There is a push right now by the leader of Russia to have a treaty with Iran where there is some dealings of, of, of nuclear capabilities, which is what Iran wants. And, and uh, it seems like they little by little are getting it. But uh, see, th this is one of the reasons why, you know, when you read the scriptures, then you realize God's bringing a lot of things about. Things are starting to happen. Things are starting to fall into place. The Lord gave us these things thousands of years ago. That particular prophecy was 2,500 years ago. And now they're happening today. And they're starting to happen at a more rapid pace. Which is, is one reminder for us as believers in Jesus Christ to get our lives right and to get our lives ready for the coming of the Lord. And, and we need to have that, that particular focus and view in mind. The time is close. And the far fulfillments of Isaiah's prophecies are in their greatest preparations right now, today. And what we're seeing and hearing in the media is but a glimpse of the planning and the provision of the Lord for the people of Israel. That's called the epicenter. That's what Joel Rosenberg, in, in another book, which is actually a, a, a non-fiction book, uh, he called Epicenter. Because the Middle East right now is the very center of all attention worldwide. And anybody who doesn't think that that is, is important or significant has been, you know, sleeping with their head underneath the ground, you know. And, and probably are still there and, and, and not breathing well and so not a lot of oxygen is getting to their brain. You understand what I mean? And so we've seen this happen, though, several times in history. Going back to Isaiah's day, from Isaiah's day, the southern kingdom of Judah fell further and further away from the Lord until they reached the point where God would send the Babylonians to conquer them and take them into captivity in Babylon. And when they got rid of their idols and they went back to worshiping the Lord, which they eventually would do, God's discipline on, on them uh, being complete and they had learned their lesson. It was then that the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. So Babylon then had to fall for some other things to happen. 
Babylon had to fall in order that Judah might return to their land, which they did in a partial fulfillment. In a partial fulfillment. You see, they're returning to their land again. That is for the ultimate fulfillment. But in the partial fulfillment, Babylon had to fall in order that Judah might return to their land. Because we're going to find out later on in Isaiah that God even names the person who's going to bring them back into their land. Cyrus. Cyrus. And he names him years before he comes onto the scene. We'll talk about that when we finally get there. So, in verse 1 of our text, we're finally there. In verse 1 of our text, we are also told that strangers will be joined with them. Strangers will be joined with them. Really signifying that non-Israelites will join Israel. Gentiles will join Israel and be incorporated with them. Sound familiar? Of course it does. Partially, you know, to, to a certain extent, we're, we're dealing, of course, with, you know, being grafted into, into the vine of, of Israel or into the, the fig tree, as it were. But also, in the ultimate fulfillment, there will be those who will come eventually and, and, and support, not only support Israel, but cling to Judah, as, as we've already read. But uh, the strangers will be joined to them, signifying that non-Israelites will join Israel and be incorporated with them. And this is something that Isaiah actually mentions a few times. Because if you look at, uh, jump down almost to the end, Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 6, it says, Also the sons of the foreigner, sons of the foreigner, Gentiles, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations not just for the Jews but for all nations not just for Israel but for all nations you see, and this is why it is important for us to have the love for Israel that God has for His people. And not to look at Israel as, 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 as something that has already passed, that God has, 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 has forsaken because they have disobeyed Him long enough. Because you see, then we would be contradicting Scripture if we are talking then about a, a fulfillment that is over with where God continues to say, but... And then just read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans and realize that even Paul, in his day, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the birth of the church, there's still an Israel in his heart. There's still an Israel in God's heart. And we have to remember that the Bible says, I will bless them who bless thee. I will curse them who curse thee. Well, I don't want to be cursed, man. I'm going to love Israel. <laughs> And I want to support Israel if God would have me to do it. And I would want you to do it because I don't want anyone to be cursed. Jump down to Isaiah 60, verse 10. It says, The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. There again, the sons of foreigners shall build your walls. Interesting how there have been people. United States of America, for example. 
have been those who have come to support Israel. We're about the only ones now that really have uh, any true support for Israel. And we're losing that, uh, you know, in our own government pretty rapidly. We need to pray about that. But uh, nonetheless, Isaiah 61, verse 5, again, it says, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. They'll be serving the children of God, of the people of God, the chosen of God. And by the way, when you look, going back to uh, Isaiah 14, verse 2, where it says, Then people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. In verse 2, then, the tables will be turned. The tables will be turned, and instead of Israel being the oppressed nation, they will rule over their oppressors. But I tell you this, that places this prophecy clearly in the future because even though the Persians restored the Jews to their homeland, they were still a people subject to others. Don't forget that after the Medes and the Persians would come the Greeks, and after the Greeks later on would be the Romans. And then, of course, after the Romans would be the dispersing or the, the, the diaspora, diaspora, the, 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 the scattering of the people throughout all of the nation. And so, in the days to come then, in inviting the strangers to come and be joined to them, Israel will, in fact, by doing this, will eliminate their enemies. And it's been said that the ultimate way to conquer an enemy is to make them your friend. And certainly in the day of the Lord, in the time of the Lord, and when the day of Christ comes, and the day of the millennial kingdom, that's when there will be that peace and, and the Lord ruling with the rod of iron from Jerusalem. And there will be peace for a thousand years. Now when we get back uh, over here for just a moment, go to Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12, and it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Remember we've talked about this as being the Messiah. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left, the second time, not just the first, but the second time, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed, dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And of course, this is leading to that, that great time of millennial uh, peace. So with that in mind, we go on to verse 3 of our text in Isaiah 14. It shall come to pass in the day of the Lord. I should say, it shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow. I don't want to confuse you and say the day of the Lord there. But it shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say. So you take up this proverb, which is become and will become that taunt song or that mocking song, and notice that it, it says how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, 
The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. And so the people of the Lord will rest from the afflictions of the exile and raise a song of triumph, which is as well a mocking song against the king of Babylon. Now the Lord has broken his power and ended his tyranny. And because of that, the the earth rejoices. Even the forests, which will no longer suffer the devastation of his armies, will sound forth in exultation and that they no longer are cut down for the purposes of war and for the building of the palaces of the Babylonian kings. This indeed was one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar would do. He would go into the areas of Lebanon where they had those mighty cedars. And of course we've heard of the the cedars of Lebanon. And they'd go and just wipe out a complete forest for the sake of, of building weapons and building things that deal with war. And not only that, but also... Once he conquered those areas, he built his palaces with, this, with, 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 this, uh, with these uh, uh, resources from the forest. And then Nebuchadnezzar, as, as any great king like uh, you know, he was, in the sense of how great he was in his, in his own eyes, would always leave a mark. And there in Lebanon, they, they, they discovered this uh, uh, inscription that they found uh, in, 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 in the forests of Lebanon that Nebuchadnezzar had laid down this, this particular forest for the sake of building uh, palaces and building stuff. So uh, he, put, he put his name on it. And I think I mentioned last time that Saddam Hussein, when he was uh, building, rebuilding Lebanon, I should say rebuilding Babylon, that he started putting his own inscription saying, you know, Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, so the guy was just like, something's wrong with his hand, his head. There. But anyway, they're real big on themselves, you know. Well, that's what you do when you're a king. By the way, in Isaiah 37, listen to this. Isaiah 37, verse 24, it says, By your servants you have reproached the Lord, and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. That was about Nebuchadnezzar. Just wanted to pass that on to you. But before we go on, I think this would be a good place for us to consider the rest. That is our inheritance. The rest that is the inheritance of every believer in Jesus Christ. The rest. The R-E-S-T. The rest that comes from knowing Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to have the rest from sorrow, the rest from those afflictions, the rest from fear, rest from hard bondage. I was reading a a devotional today in which the author, who was speaking of Christians who lag behind in their walk with the Lord, he made the statement, he said, they spend nights praying for what is already theirs in Christ. Think about this. They spend nights praying for what is already theirs in Christ. This would be those who are lagging behind in their walk with the Lord. 
You know, there are those who walk ahead of the Lord. They, they think that they've got so much wisdom from God that they get ahead of God, you know, and they try to do things in their own power, in their own might, and they mess up, and then God catches up and says, see, you should have waited for me. And then there are those who lag behind, and, you know, God is trying to get us to go, and, and they're just coming along. They're afraid to take steps. They're afraid to do certain things because they don't really want to blow it, you know. You ever been there? Well, you want to do things for the Lord, but you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to take, you know, have these false hopes or whatever. So you don't say anything, and therefore nothing said, nothing accomplished. And they lag behind, so they begin to pray for things that they already have in the Lord. And the Lord says, you already got that. Why are you praying for it? All of these things I've given you. Oh, God, give me rest. Well, the only time when you feel unrest is because you're not in the right place. If you read the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews tells us that the children of Israel themselves didn't enter into the promised land. Why? Because they, you know, they weren't at rest with the Lord. Because of their disobedience. And so, you know, we, we have to put aside things. We have to catch up with the Lord. We need to be like Enoch, who walked with the Lord, it tells us in the book of Genesis. Enoch walked with the Lord. That means he walked side by side with the Lord. Didn't get ahead of the Lord, didn't get behind the Lord. God's given us rest. Rest from sorrow. Rest from bondage. Rest from the bondage of sin. Rest from the afflictions and the fears of walking in the old man. And it was Jesus who told us that this question, or, or I should say made this statement. When I read that particular devotional this morning, it prompted me to ask the question, why do we ask for what is already ours in Christ? So it brings me to what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and you hear me say this a lot because I want people to come to this reality. Jesus is saying to you, if you don't know Christ, he's saying to you, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I repeat this time and again because I believe even in this place, I believe even every time you know, we gather together that there are believers today who are finding themselves in unrest. They, they're restless. Restless with God, restless with the things of God, or restless because they don't feel they have the things that God wants them to have. But Jesus, when, when he came into our lives, brought everything that we needed for life and godliness, gave us his Holy Spirit, gave us his wisdom, gave us his righteousness, so that we might put it on and live and walk and, and, and walk with Christ, no matter what we face. He didn't give us a, the, he didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. And as believers, we have to not fear. We, we, we ought not to fear the things of this world, you see. Because Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Do you have rest from sorrow? I hope you do tonight. Do you have rest from fear? I hope you do. Do you have rest from hard bondage? And I'm not talking about just the slavery of working, 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 but a hard bondage being connected to sin and death in your own mind, thinking, oh man, I've blown it. I've gone through this. I've got to work. No, no, no. Jesus already accomplished it on the cross. What you need to be working out is your own salvation and fear and trembling, trusting in the Lord for God 
is at work in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure if you just let him. So don't lag behind and don't get ahead. Walk with Jesus and you'll find that rest will be yours. It's already yours. See, see, you understand now what I mean when I say, you know, we pray for rest, but we're supposed to already have it. You understand that? Why are we praying for what is already ours? Are you all here? Anybody here? Okay. I just want to make sure. I don't know. Maybe you guys are resting and I don't know it. Okay. All right. That's it. I think I I figured that one out. Okay. Got to go on here because I got a whole bunch of pages and I'm not even close to being finished. So now, now it's believed. Let's go on. Now it's believed that in the near and the partial fulfillment, the mighty monarch whose pride brought him to destruction was actually Belshazzar. Belshazzar, I should say, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when Darius the Mede captured Babylon in 539 B.C. By the way, you can read about that in Daniel chapter 5. That Belshazzar is the one that, uh, uh, you know, his pride brought him to that uh, destruction. Uh, And that, you know, regarding, uh, so, uh, the, the near and partial fulfillment. But what comes next in our text points also to the distant fulfillment, that regarding the spiritual kingdom of Babylon, the spiritual Babylon, the world system, and its king, who we know is Satan. Look at verses 9 through 11 of the text. It says, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. Boy, that does not sound good. I don't like to hear about worms or maggots. Anybody love them? I don't. Don't think any of us. I mean, I'm already itching just reading this passage. You know, it just oh man, you know the the maggot is spread under you, the, the worms cover you. Oh, ha! It's important. Let's go on. It's important to note that while there is reference here to the immediate fulfilling of this prophecy to the king of literal Babylon, reference to Satan is also being made. Please understand this, because there are those who strongly disagree with his view. But we only have to look at the context to see that there is, as in many prophecies, a partial fulfillment as well as an ultimate fulfillment. And in both cases, you know, Israel is going to rejoice. In both cases, Israel is going to rejoice. They rejoice when they, re- when they return to their land. They will rejoice when they see Him come whom they pierced. Though they will weep at first, there's going to be rejoicing because their Messiah will come and conquer for them. And so the proverb against the king of Babylon was in a partial sense vocalized by those returning from exile when Babylon was conquered. And in an ultimate sense, the proverb will be on the lips of God's people when the world system and its king, who is Satan, are each conquered and defeated and destroyed. And in this particular sense, in verses 9 through 11, a continuation of this funeral scenario of the previous verses hell which is Sheol the grave or the underworld which by the way had two compartments it was 
there was one compartment where you know the souls of those who were dead and, and without God, you know, never followed God, never trusted God, you know, were there, uh, Hades, uh, and then there was the other compartment which was called paradise. Uh, you see this in a uh, in a story, a parable that Jesus gave of of the rich man and Lazarus, and uh, so. Uh, but in any event. Uh, Hell gets excited. It's, it, that's what we just read. Hell gets excited in meeting the king of Babylon. In other words, all those who have died before this king uh, of Babylon get up from their places. And they're excited to meet this person. Delighted that he too has been stripped of his wealth. Delighted that he's been stripped of his glory and of his power. That's what we're finding there. It says, oh, listen, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Stirs up the dead. Hey, everybody, wake up. Look who's here. King of Babylon is here. Have you become as weak as us? Have you, have you become like us? My goodness, your pomp is brought down. The pomp and the pageantry of your kingship at all. That's just been brought down to Sheol. The sound of your stringed instruments, eh. The maggot. Your bed. Worms. Your comforter. <laughs> that doesn't sound really good. You see, and so they get up, they're excited, they're delighted to see that he's just stripped. So it's all a mock tribute. Death is the great leveler, you see. Listen carefully. Death is the great leveler. There are no kings, in other words, in the world of the dead. There are no kings in the world of the dead. There are no kings in Hades. There are no kings in hell. There are no CEOs. Presidents, vice presidents. There are no princes and queens. Oh, in this world they may have been those things, but they're, they're none of those things. You might have been the richest person in all the world, but there you're not rich. Everybody paid the same. Everybody has the same salary. And then we see that this is a disgusting and a degrading scene. The pomp and the pageantry of Babylon's king has passed away. The palace music is ended and he sleeps on a sheet of maggots and is covered by a blanket of worms. The mention of the sound of stringed instruments brings to mind the association with music that Satan had in heaven. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 13 for just a moment. And next week we're going to kind of touch with uh, touch bases with Ezekiel 28 a little bit more, but for now just just to show you this particular uh, connection to to music and and to Satan's connection to music. It says in Ezekiel 28 verse 13, "You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering: the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold." But notice this part. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. Those are instruments. Those are musical instruments. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. 
And this is a reminder of a couple of things. First of all, it reminds us, I don't want to get a little bit too far ahead of myself, but when we get to the point where we find Lucifer, and the name of Lucifer is coming up here in just a moment, matter of fact, in verse 12. But when we get to that point, it has been considered that because of this connection of the enemy with, 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 with stringed instruments and, and, and musical instruments, that, that uh, Lucifer, who was created as an angel to worship and to serve God in his presence, reminds us that he was, before he was what he is today, Satan and the, the great deceiver, and, and, and uh, you know our uh, you know opponent against you know us and against God was a worship leader. Oh, sorry, worship leaders. Don't worry, I'm one too. But, you know, uh, was a worship leader. Worship before God before he fell. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this next time, but but. Uh, it also reminds us of a second thing. Certainly a reminder for us to store our treasures in heaven. We need to store our treasures in heaven because you see in hell they, they don't they just don't count. Nothing's there. For those who work for treasure here on earth, they'll have to leave it all behind one day. Much like those South American dictators who take all their money that they rob from their people and deposit in a Swiss bank for the day that they have to flee their country. You know, that's how they make it. You know, they rob from the people. They send the money to, Swiss, to Switzerland, and then, you know, as soon as there's a coup against them, they run and hide, and then they end up getting their money from Switzerland. Well, that might work here, but it's not going to work when the Lord comes. Because you can't take it with you. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. King of Babylon's heart was with himself and with his treasures and with his pomp and with his pageantry and with his pipes and his music. And one day Satan... be cast into the lake of fire never to again deceive as he has and so we've now arrived at the very boast of the fall of one who is referred to as light bearer or morning star Lucifer son of the morning look at verse 12 how you are fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning how you are cut down to the ground you who weakened the nations for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. To the very lowest depths. Verses like this that prompted Dante to write his great work, the Inferno, and you know that, but uh, and then you know in it to devise this this picture of levels and 
and depths and, and all in hell. But the prophet Isaiah saw in all of this something far deeper than the defeat of an earthly kingdom. In the fall of the king of Babylon, he saw the defeat of Satan, the prince of this world who seeks to empower and to motivate the leaders of nations. Jesus made one little statement in John 12, verse 31, when he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Dealing with what Jesus came to do for us, you know, it was, it was the process had already begun, but going to the cross, you know, being lifted up so that all men should, should look unto him. Eventually, of course, in time, the complete defeat of sin and death and the enemy would take place. But he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we are told by Paul, you knew he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of, the flesh, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we see this prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. working in the sons of disobedience, working in nations. We're told in Daniel chapter 10 that Satan has assigned princes or fallen angels to the various nations to influence leaders to act in defiance to the word and the will of God. And while there is a, a, an angel that is over uh, Israel, his own people, and Michael, of course, you read in, in Daniel chapter 10, in verse 20 of Daniel 10, it says, Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. He's not talking about a, 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 a human being prince. He's not talking about some, somebody flesh and blood. He's talking about a principality. He's talking about a spiritual power. He's talking about a fallen angel that has been assigned... That particular nation, Persia, then, of course, the prince of Greece. When you read chapter 10, you realize that, that uh, Michael has been in a, in a struggle for 21 days, and you find out that those 21 days were the three weeks that Daniel was in heavy-duty prayer for his people. And so, this is what's happening. This is why... We're told to put on the armor of God because, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and, and the spiritual wickednesses in high places. So evidently, since Lucifer is Latin for morning star, this suggests that this king's glory didn't last very long. Because the morning star shines, but is soon swallowed up by the light of the sun. So from that perspective, this morning star shines for a time, but when the sun comes up, S-O-N as well as S-U-N, then that morning star will no longer have the power to shine. And this is the only place, by the way, that this specific word, Halel, Halel, is found and it comes from another Hebrew word, halal, 
which of course is where we get the word Hallel, which is hallelujah, which means praise. It means to shine, to boast, and to praise. And it is used to describe angels, and it is also used to describe Jesus. In Job 38, verses 4 through 7, God is saying to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice, when the morning stars sang together. Not talking about the stars, talking about angels. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus is speaking and he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The bright and morning star in contrast to the morning star or the sun of the morning, which will only shine as bright until the bright and morning star, which is the sun, shines its light. So in our text, Isaiah is pointing more to the distant future and the ultimate fulfillment than just to the near and immediate and partial fulfillment. Now, the reference to Satan is a valid reference. I mentioned before that so there's those you know, theologians and critics that say, no, this is not talking about Satan. You know, you're all washed up if that's what you believe. But the reference to Satan is a valid uh, reference for a number of reasons. First of all, because angelic beings, both good and bad, as we've already seen in Daniel chapter 10, can be connected with earthly and political persons and nations. The similar passage in Ezekiel 28, which we read earlier, where a reference is first made of a king and then of an angelic being. That's why we're going to come back to Ezekiel next time. Uh, and then there's also a similar description given by Jesus himself. If you remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then, of course, our text tells us, it says, O Lucifer, son of the morning, and it says what about his fall? How are you fallen from where? From heaven. So you see that connection there. Then I want you to consider what Paul calls Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Satan, uh, I should say, Paul says of Satan, For such are false Christ, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, and therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And that, that's, you know, that's an ominous statement that Paul is making here. False apostles, uh, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles, into apostles of Christ. Not giving you the truth, but having some form of outward appearance. But their ends are going to be according to their work. And of course then it says because of Satan. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The name Lucifer itself indicates that Satan tries to imitate Jesus Christ who is the bright and morning star. 
And so therefore it leads us to the five I wills in verses 13 and 14. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This Lucifer needed an optometrist or an ophthalmologist because he definitely had an eye problem. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. We're told by the Lord the reason for the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, both literal and spiritual. It is something he said, though he may never have said it with his lips. What does it tell us? For you have said in your heart, you have said in your heart. It was enough that he said it with his heart. If this Lucifer is in that very throne of God, being some kind of a worship leader, some kind of a, of a leader of, of these angels before the throne of God, not to say out loud, but to say in his heart, I will. Isn't that the way a lot of people are today who want to get things accomplished just for themselves? They're not saying it out loud because they don't want anybody to know what their plans are. But they'll say, I will, in my heart, I will. I will, you know, walk over this guy. I will climb over the backs of these people to get to where I want to go. I will, I will. And you consider the pride and the selfish ambition in these five statements. I will ascend into heaven. What is he saying? Heaven is going to be my home as well as my place of honor. And I'll ascend as king to his throne. Secondly, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be enthroned and exalted above all other angelic beings. The stars of God. Not just the little blinking lights up there in the heavens. The stars of God. The other angelic beings. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will make, in other words, he says, I will make my throne on Mount Zion, the place where God had his temple built, the place where he would meet his people. And there he says, I will sit for glory and honor and attention. He wanted attention. I will sit above the heights of the clouds. He's saying, I will continue to rise even in heaven until everyone sees me in my brightness and my glory. I will be like the Most High. He's saying, I will be glorious and equal to God, far above all creation. I will. I will. This is a pride that some people have still today. Sometimes motivated by others who say, listen, Don't take anything from anybody. You're the most important person in your life. Everybody else is going to serve you. It's unfortunate that that thought is not only, you know, in the minds of those who are trying to make themselves millionaires, billionaires, or quadruple, triple, triple and all of that in the minds of people who just want power over others. 
It's in the mind of gang members. It's in the mind of, 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 of uh, pornographers. It's in the minds of a lot of people. I will, not God. This is a wonderful quote. Uh, I've got to find out who said this. But it's been said. It is a strange paradox that nothing makes a being less like God than the urge to be his equal. For he who is God stepped down from the throne of his glory to display to the wondering eyes of men the humility of God. Man, what, what an awesome statement that is. Pardon my use of the word awesome. That is a great statement. It is a strange paradox that nothing makes a being less like God than the urge to be his equal. For he who is God stepped down from the throne of his glory to display to the wondering eyes of men the humility of God. Despite Satan's desire to exalt himself, he will in fact be brought down. Look at verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. We're going to pick up here next time, but let me leave you with a couple of verses of Scripture. First of all, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Folks, if you want to go up, you've got to go down. If you want to be lifted up, you need to humble yourself. Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, sat down and he called his twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You see, these are the lessons that Lucifer didn't learn in heaven. He was the son of the morning as a created being. He was a morning star, but he wasn't the bright and morning star. And that's what he wanted to be. And it's an interesting thing how, you know, you hear these stories about people that, you know, they really want to make it big in, in life, or they want to make it big in Hollywood, or they want to make it big in the music business. And, and you read some of the stories of some of these people, you know, and, and they start off good. They start off okay. They start off humble, you know, and come from humble circumstances. And then all of a sudden, you know, to, to make it big, you know, they've got to, to, they've got to close their eyes to other people's uh, burdens and, and cares. And they just got to, you know, trample over everybody to get to where they're going. In some cases, even, even giving their, their lives over to Satan, you know. As some in the music business of the last 30 or 40 years have done. And not only in the music business, but in a lot of things. But Jesus came to show us what true greatness is. What true significance is. What true life is. 
what true glory is. I did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. That's Jesus. That's our model. If we want to go up, we got to go down. If we want to be lifted up and exalted, we need to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Let's pray.